Welcome to Hope Plus, the podcast for Hope Community Church. If you're a new listener, we encourage you to check us out at hopecommunity.ca or find us on social media. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Well, we are going to continue our sermon series called Homegrown. And really, in a nutshell, what we've been trying to do over the last number of weeks is reflect on what does it look like if we seek first the kingdom in our home? What's it look like when we seek first the kingdom in our marriages, when we seek first the kingdom in our parenting, when we seek first God's kingdom in our hospitality? And this morning we're looking at what it would it look like for us to seek first the kingdom of God with our finances, with our money. And if you're visiting, I just want you to know, we don't preach on money every week. It's like the stereotype of the church, but we are preaching on it today. If you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Timothy. We're going to read two sections from chapter 6, starting with verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith, and pierce themselves with many griefs. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of life That is truly life. Well, one of the things that Brittany, my wife, and I enjoy doing together in ministry is pre-marriage counseling with couples who are preparing for marriage. And we sit down with them and we get to know them, and one of the things that we make sure we really talk about is money. And the reason we do that is probably threefold. One is couples are often very terrible at talking about finances. It's awkward. Sometimes it feels a bit shameful to say how much you, or you don't have or what you do have. I'm told and had confirmed this week that conflict over a lot of things orients around money. In fact, money is cited as one of the two most common sources of divorce. I corroborated that this week, by the way, when I was talking to my brother, who's a marriage counselor, and I said, is it true that, you know, so many marriages, the the source of conflict is finances? How much does it come up? And my brother just said to me, all the time. And even if money isn't the source of the conflict, it's always attached to it, because spending habits or things you don't spend money on reveal where you're at or reveal what you love. And regardless of whether you know it or not, your money and how you use it in your home, says a lot about you, says a lot about your loves, says a lot about your desires. And so when we mapped up the sermon series, we just said, okay, we're going to do at least one Sunday on how do we manage and steward the money that God gives our home. Not only does the Bible have a lot to say about money in this passage in particular, but we happen to live in a time and in a culture where it's crucial to think about, as believers, how we manage our money because we live in a culture that is obsessed and preoccupied with the accumulation and the consumption of money. So Paul talks a lot about money in this passage. He cares a lot about money in this passage because it matters. And just imagine, in Paul's situation, 
He's very aware that in the cities that he goes to, there's extreme differences of wealth and poverty, just like today. Even in the church, you should know that if you read Ephesians 5 and then 6, two groups of people that Paul addresses before he talks about those who have money are the widows and the slaves. And so you can imagine the pastoral burden Paul feels for the widows and slaves, both of whom would be very economically challenged, and now he's got to talk to those in the church who have money. Well, what is he going to say to them? What's his word to those who have wealth? And this is what it's going to be. You're going to see this this morning. It really is a fourfold invitation, command really, to the way of Jesus. The four dimensions of finances that Paul talks about are simplicity, gratitude, contentment, and generosity. We're going to unpack all four of those in this passage. So let's take a look at how Paul starts. In verse 6, we'll read again. But godliness with contentment, there's that word, is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Or to quote my grandpa, he always says, you'll never see a hearse towing a U-Haul trailer. You get it? You can take nothing out of this world with you. You might amass a lot of stuff in it, but it's not coming with you whether you like it or not. Then he continues, but if you have food and clothing, be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and to many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And I bet that last line, you know stories that illustrate the point. Maybe you've experienced what what it looks like to chase after money and pierce yourself with many griefs. Now, the first thing to note that Paul mentions is contentment. Now, contentment, it needs to be named, is not directly attached to your income. Do you know this? Contentment is not necessarily contingent on your income. We know many wealthy people, or you might know many wealthy people, who are not content. And you might know very poor people, culturally speaking, who are very content. I'm struck by an interview that was once done with a Fortune 500 CEO, and it was televised, and the interviewer just said to this guy, How much money do you need to be happy? And you know what he answered? Just a little bit more. And in that statement, he summarized what so many Western people feel. I'll be content if I get this. I'll be be satisfied if I just get a little bit more. But money is not what makes us content. Contentment is attached to our relationship with the living God. Throughout the Scriptures, those who are content are those who know that there really is a Heavenly Father who is deeply concerned about his world and his children and will provide just like a loving father provides for his children. And once you know that, it changes your relationship to money. And the issue that I think we need to name for us as Western people is that we functionally live like atheists. We don't manage our money like there's a God who's taking care of us. We don't think about our money. We don't imagine our finances in terms of God giving these gifts for us to receive and God providing for our families for these various reasons. We sort of see it all up to us. We're in charge of the show. We direct how things are to be done with our finances. Now, Paul is acutely aware of the risks and the pitfalls of money. He's aware that money is a tool that so quickly becomes an idol. And it is not, it's important to differentiate in this passage, money is not the root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of money. It's when it moves from a tool to an idol. When it moves from something that can bless to something that gives you identity, satisfaction, meaning, and purpose. And man, does it move in that direction quickly. 
As soon as you start chasing money and it becomes the purpose of your life, you start seeing a wave of destruction come into your workplace, your family, your marriage, and much, much more. You know, if I had to pick one of the top Western idols, I'd say it's money. Would you say that? Like, we worship money. N.T. Wright, one of the biblical scholars I love and read a lot, he says, you know, the only difference between ancient civilizations and modern civilization is they gave fancy names to their gods, you know? We just call our, our gods our money, sex, power, prestige. It just is. And we worship money, you know? We mentioned a few weeks ago that the tallest buildings in our cities are banks. Our architecture sort of glorifies and exalts finances, Greed is an acceptable vice in Western society. Workaholism is totally understandable because it gets you what? Gets you money. Five weeks ago, when we were preaching on the biblical story and talking about the cultural story, we sort of said, like, people, not even Christians, can summarize the Western story in this way. When you're a kid, you go to school. So what? What's the next part? So you get a good job. So you make lots of money, and that, then you can retire and not work and enjoy your consumer lifestyle. That's, that's sort of the dumbed-down, simplified story of Western culture. Get a good job, make lots of money, so that you don't have to work and can enjoy your retirement with wealth. And what I've noticed lately, at least it's since COVID, is that not only are we a culture that's obsessed with money, but we want money fast. And maybe you remember this, over COVID, all of a sudden, like, stock investing skyrocketed, online gambling skyrocketed, in-person gambling even became very popular, Bitcoin just went through the roof, all these ways of making not just money, but fast money. You don't have to really work for it, you just have to take a risk and click a button here, and that's a lure. In fact, I heard a few sales pitches over the last few years, and if I'm honest with you, some from extended family and friends... You know, I'll hear it, I'm like, ah, no, that's a terrible idea. But when I get home, I'm like, it's tempting, that Bitcoin. One of the people who told me about Bitcoin and tried to sell me on it said that the slogan for Bitcoin, get this, is come for the greed, stay for the revolution. Have you heard that? And something about having that sales pitch to me, I was like, I don't know if I can get on board with something where you have to come for the greed. It just, just doesn't sit well with me. It wasn't a good sales pitch to a pastor. But then Paul continues in verse 17 to talk about two very relevant dangers, even today. It's almost like he's writing to the Western church. He writes, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Point number one, money makes you proud. It makes you arrogant. The thing about money is it kind of gets you what you want, right? The bigger home, more travel, the things that other people can't have. If you've got money, you get those things. And as one of my friends once put it, who needs Jesus to take care of your needs if you can do it on your own? So it makes you arrogant. Number two, I really appreciate Paul saying it's so uncertain. Like, can we name the reality that money can come and man, can it go? There's stories even within our church of people receiving money, getting wealthy, and then poof, something goes wrong, and it's gone. And we have to ask, who are you then? Who are you when that big identity you built around your finances goes flat and your portfolio is empty? Who are you then? I read this week in a book called Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller that after the 2008 financial crisis, there were a number of CEOs and hedge fund managers who took their own lives after that financial crisis. Just think about that for a minute. They took their own lives when they lost their money. 
And there's only one explanation for that. Tim Keller goes on to say, when you put your hope in money, when it becomes the whole of your identity and you lose it, you've got nothing left to live for. And so these people who lived and worked and breathed money said, I'm going to take my own life because I have nothing left to live for. And in stark contrast to that, Paul is giving us a vision of believers in cities then and in cities now who can, when they have wealth and finances, be generous, and when they're in times of scarcity, be content, and perhaps even generous then too. Why? Because their security is not in their bank. Their identity is not in their salary. So now in the next few verses, Paul starts to give positive encouragement. I want to work these out slowly with us in terms of what he's saying to the church then and today. He says, command those who are rich to put their hope in God. God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. And there's three specific dimensions to that passage that I want to just unpack briefly. Number one, Paul says, do not put your hope in money. It's, it's fleeting. It's going to come and it's going to go. Put your hope in God. Why? Because he's the one who gives all resources and he gives us all things so that we can enjoy his creation. That is a deep reflection. Paul says, you know, the father you serve is not saying divest yourself of everything and be destitute. It says here, he gives us everything for our enjoyment, and he wants us to enjoy the goodness of creation. And not just you, he wants everyone to. And I think sometimes Christians can almost have this false sense of guilt for the goodness they experience in the world. And I want us to say as a a body of believers, praise the Lord. And I'll say this person, I'll give my own example. Praise the Lord for downhill skiing. I love going with my kids to Mount Seymour, standing with the trees in the snow and flying down the hill trying to keep up with them. I love that. Some of us love camping, and the most dangerous aisle for you is in Canadian Tire. Are you some of those people? Some of you love good takeout food from the restaurant down the road, whether it's Bang Tok D in Langley, one of my favorites, or Chef's Kebab in Fleetwood. There's such good food, and when you receive that food, it sits on your table, and you don't have to cook for it. You say, praise the Lord for the ability to enjoy the goodness of creation. But then secondly, Paul moves on to say, if you've got money, if God has given you the gift of wealth, you need to be generous. You need to give money away. You need to be willing to share. And notice, this is not an invitation. It's a command. He's not saying, hey, it might be a good idea. He's saying, hey, you got money? You must share. And he also knows that as the Spirit of God works in us, we should want to share. One of the striking things about many of the letters in the New Testament is that Paul writes to the church and then he says to them, hey, I'm going to come to your church. And when I do, I'm actually taking up the collection myself. In Romans, by the way, I think it's chapter 13, after this long theological deep teaching on the story of the Bible, he says, by the way, the reason I'm coming is because I'm taking up a collection. And I want you to give because there's believers in Jerusalem who are really struggling and you've got money, so I'm taking your money to care for them. And he had no shame doing it. Because he saw that's one of the gifts that the wealthy can give is taking care of the brothers and sisters in another city and their brothers and sisters in their own city. It's worth noting as well that I think the gratitude for the good things of creation that we enjoy should lead to the groaning for all the things that many people in the world do not get to enjoy. As you enjoy the gift of takeout, 
we need to be aware that there's people who don't eat anything. As you enjoy the gift of being on a mountain skiing, you'll realize there's many people who will never be able to see the beautiful sights that you get to see because they live in slums. And the gratitude for the way we get to enjoy the goodness of creation must fuel a groaning for the problems and the pain that fuels a generosity to care for our neighbors, our brothers and sisters, and our world. They're connected. The third thing in this passage that I find so striking is what he says at the end, that by giving and by being generous and by caring for the needs of those around, we set up treasures in heaven as a firm foundation for the age to come. Isn't that an interesting passage? We store up ourselves treasures in heaven so that we can choose life and experience life that is truly life. Maybe a different way to put it, and I'm stealing from someone else on this one, is that by being generous now, we're practicing what all humans are going to be like when Jesus returns in glory. When Jesus returns, wealth will be distributed, people will not have any needs, and we will all live in a fully generous human way. And we get to start now through the work of Jesus to practice the generosity that will be normal in the age to come. That will be the true life that all of us experience when Christ returns in glory. John Stott gives a phenomenal summary of this passage that I put on the screen for us to read together. I think this is just such a wise and great summary of this whole passage. He writes, Looking over both paragraphs about money, the apostles' balanced wisdom becomes apparent. Against materialism, an obsession with material possessions, he sets simplicity of lifestyle. Against asceticism, the repudiation or not enjoying the material order, he sets gratitude for God's creation. Against covetousness, a lust for more possessions, he sets contentment with what we have. Against selfishness, the accumulation of goods for ourselves, he sets generosity in imitation of God. Simplicity, gratitude, contentment, and generosity constitute a healthy quadrilateral of Christian living. Isn't that a great quote? So let's bring this teaching home, okay? Let's bring this right home to our own places, our own spaces, the way we manage our own money. And here's the question. Could those four words describe your home? Do they describe the household that you live in? Could it be said of you if someone lived with you for a week or a month or a year, man, they lived simply. They lived with such gratitude to God for what they had. They were truly content, not chasing after more, and they were generous. Could that be said of your household? I think, this is my own take, that for many of us who grew up in Canada and who've lived here for a while, we are so steeped in a greedy culture, in a culture that chases after material possessions, that we're not even sure what it looks like to have a healthy relationship with money. We're so used to justifying what we do because we know someone, even some Christian who makes more than us, that we just find a way of justifying all of our purchases, all of our lifestyle. Everything we do, just it's kind of okay. Tim Keller mentioned in one of his talks a while ago that in his entire ministry, he was pastor in New York for many, many years, his entire ministry, he had people confess many different sins to him. But you know what people never confessed to him? Greed. In his entire ministry in New York, he never had one person come up to him and say, you know, Tim... I love money too much. It's just a huge problem. I chase after it. It's an idol in my heart, and I need to deal with it. I need repenting of it. He says, never once did someone confess the idol of greed. And that suggests, at least to me, that there's just something insidious and deceptive about the lure and power of wealth for all of us. And we need to be honest 
ask hard questions, be willing to be vulnerable and upfront about how we steward the money God gives us. Here are some good questions that I think would be helpful to ask around the dinner table, in your small group, with your roommates. Number one, are you content with what you have? If you had only what you have now for the rest of your life, would you be content? Or do we live in such a way that suggests we'll be happy only if we get that bigger space, that renovated space, that nicer vehicle, those nicer clothes, or that number in the RRSP before we retire? Do we live that way? Can we part with our money? Can you give it away without being frustrated or thinking that that person or that cause is now indebted to you because you've given money? Can you give it away generously, freely, willingly? A couple years ago, Barna Research uh, Group did a study in the States on Christian giving. You're not going to like these stats. I'll just give it, be upfront about this. And, uh, but, you know, you could write this off and say, it's just Americans. We're much better. But I have a feeling that these stats translate. You ready for this? They discovered that 50% of Christians give nothing, absolutely nothing away. I find that so hard to believe. And here's the other one. They found out that of those who do give... The average Christian giving is just over 3%. And it's worth noting that in the Old Testament, believers, God's followers, were commanded to give 10% of what they received back. In the New Testament, there's not a necessary command, but it's a command to be generous that we're seeing even this passage. But somehow, we know the Old Testament command, we know that we're commanded to be generous, and we say, no way. Or we find all sorts of excuses to not practice the very thing we're commanded to do in this passage. And we need to ask the question, what makes giving hard for us? What are the questions we need to ask ourselves about our own patterns, our own spending, our own desires that withhold us from practicing generosity? Now, here's the point of my sermon where I just want to know, I want to say, I get where your brain is probably going. I said this in 9 a.m. service, I'll say it again. Most of us are probably thinking, okay, Dave, we live in British Columbia, which someone told me is one of the three top most expensive places in the world to live. And here you are with the audacity to say, hey, let's be generous. Or let me add to that, hey, Dave, did you know that inflation's on the rise in Canada and that interest rates on our variable mortgage make it so that we're paying the same amount, we're actually losing money on the house that we bought two years ago or the condo we bought three years ago, not to mention the insane rent that makes it almost impossible to buy a house. And that's not to mention, you know, as an Ontarian, I just have to say this. When people move from other parts of Canada to BC, we're like, so why is everything more expensive in this province? Like insurance, food, gas, all of it. They're like, oh, you moved to BC? Welcome to more expensive. And here's Pastor Dave saying, let's be generous. We cannot allow some of these financial challenges to blind us to the reality of living in Canada. Let me just name a few things, a few privileges that we experience every day, for the most part, that is not shared by the rest of our brothers and sisters in the world or even in our country. You're ready for this. For the most part, with some exceptions, we can get work. We can find steady jobs. We have access to healthcare, every single one of us. Safe travel, maternity leave, child tax benefit, employment income if we lose work, all sorts of resources at our disposal. And let me just say, very few people in the world have access to that. 
Very few Christians in the world have access to that. You know, as one person once said to me, who lived in India, that to be born in Canada is to win the cosmic lottery, is to be born in one of the safest, wealthiest parts of the entire globe. And I'm so worried that sometimes when we grow up in it or we live in it, we have no idea just how good it is where we live. And I think what's needed for Western believers is to get close to pain, get close to poverty, get close to real needs, build some friendships with people who are not in the same socioeconomic category, and you're going to see just how good most of us have it. This is not a time for the Western church to be tight-fisted, selfish, or fearful about finances. I really do believe that if we think globally, we will see just how insanely wealthy the Western church is and the beautiful responsibility we as a whole have to care for our brothers and sisters who are struggling in very profound ways. I think it's maybe helpful at this point to share a story about how this affects uh, Brittany and I in our own relationship. Part of our own story is me dealing with my own greed. I'll just be honest about that. As a kid, maybe you can relate, I was a saver, capital S. I didn't even need to save for anything. I just liked to save. Anyone can relate to this? And when I was a teenager and I got a job, my parents forced me to give. I was so angry about that. That felt so unjust. I worked for this money and now I have to give it to my church. And I went through a process of learning how to part with my money and I felt like I was growing. And then I met my wife, Brittany. And the Lord has some sense of humor when he brings couples together because if you know Brittany, you'll know that she is very generous. And I had to grow as I met married Brittany. And there was one story, I would say it's a bit of a milestone story in our marriage because it was a moment of conflict about finances. It was a time where I was studying at Calvin, I was finishing up my degree, and I remember going into the school to pay for my tuition, and I came home and I'm like, Brittany, we are well and truly broke. Like, this is, this is as broke as I've ever been. And uh, very shortly after that, I don't want to give a timeline, but it was pretty close to that experience, I came from class again, and Brittany, almost like a confession, said, so I gave some money away to this particular cause, and I'm not going to say what the cause was. I'll let Brittany share that if she wants. But I was so upset. I was like, that cause can wait. The grooms need to take care of the grooms today. We're struggling financially. And that was a moment where Dave Groon had to come to terms with how I perceived scarcity. That's a time where Dave Groon had to learn, do I really believe that God will take care of me? And more importantly, have I lost sight of how good we still had it, even in that season at Calvin, where we could actually find many ways to be generous? And this has been a learning journey for me. It's a journey where I continue to learn because I think growing up in Canada makes you blind to the real seductive power and lure of money. And that includes pastors just like me. So let me return to where we begin with pre-marriage counseling. When Brittany and I talk about money with couples, and even as a couple, we've come to realize that every conversation about money for believers is a spiritual conversation. When we talk about money, it is deeply related to our relationship with Jesus, whether you know it or not. And so how we steward it is a very important question. And here's the bottom line, one that I've discovered and I hope many of us have discovered as well. There is only one person who can free us from the lure of wealth, the constant hunger for more, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can make us generous, who can open up our tight 
fisted, cold-hearted, callous hearts to the needs around us so that we desire to give of what God has given us. It is Jesus Himself who not only models generosity and contentment and simplicity, it's Jesus Himself who comes from the glory of heaven, who enters our reality as a slave, who empties Himself of all the benefits that come with being God so that He can rescue us from the grip of idolatry. And money is one of those idols. It is Jesus Christ who hangs on the cross, defeats its power of the power of death and sin so that we can be released of our slavery to all the idols that grip our hearts, and that includes money. And Jesus in His resurrection says, if you follow me, you will gain my power, my strength through my spirit to live simply, to live contentedly, to live gratefully, and to give generously. That is the way of Jesus Christ And that is a prophetic invitation to faith in a culture obsessed with consumption and accumulation of money. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your generosity extended to us in the person of Jesus. And we thank you that through Jesus we have inherited all things, that we have salvation, we have provision, we have your presence, and we praise you for it. Lord, we confess our greed. We confess our selfishness. We confess our callous hearts to the needs right around us and around the world. And we pray that by your spirit, you would break our hearts, you would change us, and you would make us reflect the simple, content, grateful, and generous Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. 